is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. Tiffany Johnson and her husband, J.J., two self-proclaimed vacation junkies, were on the last stop of their fourth cruise snorkeling in the Bahamas when a shark attack changed her life forever. Tiffany remembers every second of the attack. Here she is with her husband, J.J., to tell their story. So my husband and I, we loved to cruise. We were on a cruise last June, and um, we went snorkeling. And uh, he went back to the boat. He wasn't feeling well, and I was out there just enjoying God's creation under the water. And I felt like I had bumped into something. Uh, And when I turned, I was face-to-face with a shark, and he had my whole arm in his mouth. We were just staring at each other. Like, time stood still. and I started to have all these thoughts. I felt like my body was like giving in, like a release almost, like giving up. Um, But the strength of the Lord just came out from inside me and it gave me the strength to fight. And I remember thinking, no, you are not gonna take my life. I am not gonna die here. I kept yanking and finally his his jaws opened. My arm kind of just flew out and I remember it was just gone like a mangled stump. And that was the, the thought that went through my mind was, oh my gosh, my arm's gone. I pulled off my snorkel mask and I screamed out, help, help me Jesus. And that's when I hear Tiff scream. And she screamed, help me, help me Jesus. And I remember looking at her, half of her right arm was gone. And it's just mangled, you know, mangled stump. And I see blood everywhere all around her. I screamed baby, and I jumped off the boat after her. And the first thing that I heard her doing was praying. My husband, he turned, and the the look on his face, I will never forget. It was just sheer terror. And he said later that it, it was as if he was in a horror movie because all he sees is blood literally saturating around the waters. He sees my arm is just severed, and I'm swimming back. And then he kind of pushed me up onto the boat. The captain grabbed my left arm and I landed in the boat. And the minute I hit that boat, the peace of the Lord just surrounded me like a cloud. It was like a tangible presence. I could feel him all over me. And I, of course, was urgent, but I I wasn't panicking. I wasn't crying. I didn't lose consciousness. I just looked at my husband and I said, give me something to stop the bleeding. I just laid my head on his lap and I just began to pray in the Holy Spirit, praying for my husband to give him strength. Then I prayed for my kids. I prayed in that boat that God would use this for his glory. That was the only time that I felt like, oh my gosh, my my wife could die on me. I remember making phone calls to her immediate family, my immediate family, telling them what happened, just to pray for her. So I was just praying that the Lord would just heal my wife, that she would be okay, that she was going to make it through this. In the hospital, I had a four to five hour surgery, and then I was still in critical care out of surgery. And they told my husband that I needed to see an American doctor immediately because there was only so much they could do. But yet there was no way for me to get back immediately because the U.S. Embassy was closed. It was a national holiday. It happened on a Friday. That was a holiday. They're always closing on the weekend. And then they were closed on Monday for an extended holiday. So they told us, it is literally impossible. We've checked every avenue, customs, U.S. Embassy, tourism, Ministry of Tourism, all these different people involved. There's no way for you to get back until Tuesday. 
And I remember looking at my husband and saying, no, no, no. God, God knows how to move the mountains, and I trust that he's got something better than this. And so we're just going to stand in agreement that he's going to move these mountains. And um, we had a, a, our pastor back in Charlotte. He started reaching out to people that he knew, and they, they, they had a, a contact of somebody that used to do p- private pilot um, for charter planes, and he got a hold of her. Well, now she works for a medvac company out of Charlotte, and so she started working on it. And she contacted the guy in Nassau that is a medvac company in Nassau, and the only reason they know each other is because he has a fiancé that lives in Charlotte, And they had made contact two months prior because he thought, you know, if something ever happens, I should probably get to know these Charlotte Medvac people. Two months before it happened, the guy in Nassau um, actually ended up paying for our trip. Um, It was 16 grand and and our insurance wasn't gonna cover it because we couldn't get a hold of him ahead of time to get pre-approval. And he told us we didn't owe him a penny that he would take care of it. And uh, he was, we didn't know him. He was a complete stranger. And so God was using so many different people to bless us and show us his love in the midst of it. It was just amazing. We're just, we're trying to establish our new normal and that even though it's been a year, it's still, you know, every day making that choice to choose joy and choose peace instead of uh, getting frustrated in the circumstance. I just had this surrendering moment of just healing, you know, in my in my soul and that connection of just saying, God, you're good regardless. You know, I'm not gonna let this stop my relationship with you. In fact, I'm gonna let it deepen it. You know, and it was like this moment of just, I know who I am and I know that he's called me to use this. And so it was that surrender of just use it, God, however you see fit. And that's exactly what's happened. It's been amazing, the opportunities we've gotten. I've been able to speak the name of Jesus and witness through my testimony. And it doesn't feel like witnessing, it doesn't feel like I'm preaching, but I am because I'm sharing God's story. And you can't deny the miracles and the God in my story. And so it's been just, what an opportunity that He's given us to share it. I've just been so, humbled, you know, by just the opportunities that he's given us. He could have done it another way, but he allowed me the privilege and the honor to see him use every piece of this and to see lives completely changed because of what happened to me. There's just no words for that. And I'm just so thankful um, that I get to be a part of that journey. And what a remarkable story and what a voice. And by the way, you heard her referencing her God. And while some of our stories, people don't have a God, and sometimes they do, and when they do, we don't edit it out here on Our American Stories. And we've heard such good feedback from believers and non-believers about that, our respect for all American stories and all American lives. And by the way, Tiffany's focus now is on making sure her kids are okay with the new normal. And she said that that was the hardest part about coming home as a mom, was to be able to make sure that well, that she could take care of her kids and not have any limitations. And she said, they don't really care, my kids. They just keep saying, we love you, Mama. Tiffany Johnson's story and her husband JJ's here on Our American Stories.
is our American Stories, and now we bring you Ron Brown's story, a man who we've already featured once before. His last story was titled, Reconnecting with My Absent Father, Who Was Presumed Dead. It was superb. By the way, you can find it at OurAmericanStories.com, Ron Brown's story. It was a beautiful story about Ron's relationship with his stepfather and healing his relationship with his biological father. Today, our own Joey Cortez brings us the rest of the story. Here's Ron. Down the street from my house, there was a liquor store, and it was called Rock Child. It's a a well-known liquor store in our community. And so you would see black men hang out in front of that liquor store all day long and ask you for a dollar and can I get two dollars? And they would hang out in front of that liquor store all day long. That's Ron Brown, a man who grew up in an impoverished area of the west side of Chicago, a man who would rise up out of his environment to make a difference in his life, thanks in large part to his caring and oftentimes intense mother. I remember one day we were coming home. My mother was coming home from work and she picked me up and she drove me and we parked right in front of that liquor store. And I was like, why are we here? Because my mother wasn't a drinker. And I was like, why are we here? And she said, I just want you to look. And so we're looking and I see the, you know, I see the alcoholics, I see the drunks, I see the, the drug addicts on the side and I'm looking, I'm getting a little like uncomfortable, like why are we looking at this? And this is a very true story. And my mother looked at me and she says, before I let you grow up to be a nothing, if this ever becomes you, I will ride up in my car, tell you to come over and say hi, and you'll come bringing your drunk behind over there to me. And she said, I'll pull out my gun and I'll put two in your head and lay you dead right there. And when the police come to my house two days later and say, your son died, she said, I'll cry and said, oh my God, they took my baby. That was the scariest stuff in the world that my mother ever told me. But you know what? I believed her. And so that never seemed like an option for me. And I know that may sound frightening to the people who are hearing this right here, but it scared me straight. And so here I am, 45 years old. I don't drink. (laughs) I don't drink. I don't do drugs recreationally because of what I saw growing up. And that's a that's that's a harsh reality for for a mother to tell a son. But I promise you, that scared me for her to say that. And that's how she was about you're not going to be a nothing. You're not. You're not. I, I I didn't birth for nothing. I haven't sacrificed as hard as I sacrificed and went without for you to be a nothing. And that's tough. But that's what she said, and she was firm on it. I was good. I was good because I knew that. I went to Arlie Saul's Grammar School, right? So my parents wanted me to go to Holy Name Cathedral. That was downtown. And I didn't really know too much about Cathedral. Um, I actually wanted to go to Providence St. Mel, which was down the street from where I lived. That's where I wanted to go. Oprah Winfrey was doing stuff for that school. They were doing all types of stuff. They were very well-known school and respected. My mother was like, no, I I think it's important that you get a well-rounded education. I was like, well, what do you mean a well-rounded education? She's like, look, I want you to be able to go to school with people that don't look like you. And I was like, I don't want to do that. (laughs) I I want to just go to Holy Trinity. I think it'll be great. She says, no, because the world is not one color. I want you to become a very well-rounded individual. 
And so that was where she wanted me to go. And we had to test and I tested very well to get there. The tuition was extremely high, but my parents were going to make the sacrifice for me to go. And I had a job working at Rush Presbyterian Central Hospital at the time also when I was going to start high school. And so we, we know I have me a little job and I was going to help out with the tuition. And so I went to Holy Name Cathedral. And so my mother worked at Rush Presbyterian Central Hospital and she worked on the psych unit and all the patients on the psych unit, not all, but a lot of them came from very wealthy families. People would have mental breakdowns and they would end up on that psych unit there. And um, she knew a little bit of everybody. And so my mother, I never knew how much my mother talked about me until she passed in, in later on in life. But my mother always talked about her son. I was her only son and she's very proud of me. And she says, yeah, my son is going to go to Holy Name Cathedral and this is where he's going to go. And we saved up, we've been saving up for the tuition and cool. So school starts for me at Holy Name Cathedral and like my second week of school, they tell me to come pick up some money because there's a refund there. I'm like, what do you mean there's a refund? And I get the check and I call my mom. I said, they're giving back the money. And she's like, why? Well, this is pretty interesting. One of the, one of the patients who lived, who, who basically was at the psych unit, he came from a very, very wealthy family that gave tens of millions of dollars to that hospital. My mother never knew that. Well, he heard my mother talking about me and how she was proud of me. And that's why I wanted to go to school. And he contacted, I guess, the person who handled his trust. And they sent money to Holy Name Cathedral to pay for my first two semesters of school there. And so we didn't know that. Uh, they wanted to keep it very quiet. And my mother kind of dug and dug and dug. And she kind of found out who it was. And she thanked him and wanted to return the money. And he said, no, we want to give him the best possible chance in life. You know, you're, you're here. You are a housekeeper. You clean my room every day. You talk to me. You're sweet. You're amazing. That's the least I can do. To, to make sure your son goes down the right path. And so here I am. I get to school. I'm in the whole Name Cathedral. And I'm going to be honest with you, man. I went there. The school had only been co-ed for about maybe two years when I went there. So there were a tremendous amount of girls there, Joey. Okay. So let me say my focus was not on school. Okay. I was running around trying to play basketball. I went to school to do everything but what my parents wanted me to do, get education. <laughs> and I didn't do well. I didn't do well. I thought the environment was forced. It was the first time in my life I've been around people, kids who had a tremendous amount of money and access and who got $300 a month allowances. And this is in the 90s. And they had beautiful cars and they, their parents were, yeah. I mean, I'm watching all this and I'm like, my life is not like this. And, and I got kind of wrapped up in just having fun because it was my first level of freedom, so to speak. And so um, I ended up being booted out. <laughs> they set me down and was like, yo, He's not really taking this education thing seriously. And, and I was trying to play basketball and, and, and be big man on campus. And um, it just didn't go well. And so they set me down and was like, hey, you know, you, you're not taking it seriously. And I felt bad. I, I, you know, I felt bad. I felt like I let everybody down. And I think that's the first time in my life I ever felt like that. I felt like, you know, my mom was very disappointed. My stepdad was disappointed. And I felt like this guy, you know, he believed in me and. He did that, and, and I just didn't take the opportunity seriously, you know. But and, and, and it wasn't a good fit for me. It just wasn't. I think it was just a little too much for me too soon. I had to take, like, three buses to get to school every day, so I was late all the time, and it was just – it was a lot. And so I ended up getting put out. I think in, it was in February. i never forget it was cold outside. And so uh, I was like, what are we going to do now? My mother called around to Providence St. Mel. She called Holy Trinity. She called every school there were, and they were like, look, we can't take him. You know, um, if he got put out of there, that's not what we want. We just, and it wasn't any, any behavior or anything like that. It was just strictly academic. I just wasn't doing the work. 
And so I was forced to go to John Marshall Metro. Marshall was one of the toughest public schools that there were, <laughs> that there was at the time. You know, I remember going to all of their sorrows and having to pass John Marshall to go to school and being chased by the kids at John Marshall. It was a really, really tough public school and desks being thrown out the window and school books being thrown out the window and people being thrown out the window. And I was just like, oh my God. My parent, my mother went up there and they were like kind of apprehensive, like, well, we don't want him, you know, he got cut out. And my mother said, look, you have to take him because we're in a district. And so the principal sat down and they took me in and I went in. And I'm going to tell you something. That four months put my life on a, on, a, on a road that I will never forget in my life. I went there and while I was in school there, I saw kids who couldn't read for the first time. The books that they were doing for my freshman year, I had did them when I was in fifth and sixth grade at All of Their Sorrows. Most of the classes that I went to, I end up helping the teachers because I understood the work and I had done the work already. So I kind of became sort of a teacher's pet because I was like, y'all doing this book? I've done this book before. I've read this book before. We've done this already. And they were doing it in high school. And I had done this when I was in seventh grade, you know, sixth grade, uh, fifth grade. And I was like, wow. And so I can remember sitting up there helping the teacher with class because I understood the work. I could do it. I can get it done in 15 minutes. With some people, it took all day. And she like, well, can you help out? Well, can you become my assistant and help me? And so throughout that process, man, I began to, every class I was in, I was helping out. They're like, well, can you help? Well, can you help? Can you help? I mean, you get it. You've done this. And they knew I came from a private school and they understood that. And so because I, where I got thrown out of school for not being a, a academically able, I got to this place and I was beyond everybody else. And we're listening to Ron Brown tell his story. And my goodness, we learn a lot about what Ron learned by going to the tough school in Chicago, going to the public school where he learned probably more than anywhere else in his life except that street corner that his mama parked him in front of and told him what she'd do to him if he ended up like that. And my goodness, that sounds a little bit like my grandmother and my mother. Um, that is exactly what my mom told me she would do in pretty different terms as an Italian. But same basic outcome. I'm out of the family, for sure. When we come back, more of Ron Brown's story here on Our American Stories. Continue with our American stories and with Ron Brown's story. We left off with Ron getting kicked out of his private school and starting at one of the toughest schools in Chicago, John Marshall High School. Let's return to Ron's story. While I was there, the people I met, man, they were, I, you know, when you're in private school, you don't have to decide what game you're going to be a part of. You just go to school. When we go to John Marshall, people want to know, are you going to be a gangster disciple? Are you going to be a vice lord? I mean, you, those are decisions that kids are making every single day. Fortunately, I didn't really have to make that decision. I just was really good at my work, and I was kind of cool, and I kept my head low. But people knew my uncles were criminals, and so nobody really wanted to mess with me from that standpoint. But I finished up those four months, and on those four months, I really realized the importance of education. 
I had a teacher there and God rest her soul. Um, she said, you know, but you write very, very well. You know, we have Roosevelt University. Roosevelt University has a writer's camp that they do at the college and they would pay you to come in and you would sit down. There was a guy by the name of John Fountain and John Fountain wrote for the Chicago Tribune and they had all these great writers who were published and they worked for these various news outlets and they taught the classes. And so she says, you know what? I really want you to write an essay. If you write very well, you'll get into this program and they'll pay you a couple hundred dollars a week to come out here and learn how to write. I turned the essay in and we got a call back and a letter back in the mail a month later and I was accepted into the writer's camp. And I think they had like maybe 3,000 submissions and they only picked like 30 kids. And so being in that place, I guess my talents were recognized. That was what happened at John Marshall. Those opportunities were, were there for me when they weren't there where I was prior. And so it just put me on the right path. And I went to Holy Trinity and I made honors and you know, graduated and, and, and went on to go to college and, and all that. I went to Western Illinois University. Um, and so, you know, my parents always talked about, you know, you go to college to get a job. They always said that you go to college to get a job. And so uh, I ended up in Biloxi for a summer and I learned about a company called Foot Action. And so next thing you know, I'm in retail and I'm in retail management and I'm loving it. Here I am. I'm I'm, I'm in my early 20s and I'm making, you know, 50, 60 grand in the 90s, you know, and, and I'm feeling great. Uh, I kind of traveled. I kind of went, lived all throughout the South. I lived in Mississippi. I lived in Memphis, Tennessee, Jackson, Mississippi, Monroe, Louisiana. I lived in Dallas, Texas. I just lived a bunch of places in, in the Southeastern region. And so my parents were always scared for me being in the South because I was brought up up North and they'd always be like, you know, they tell me the story of Emmett Till the young black kid from Chicago who got murdered because he quote unquote allegedly whistled at a white woman and he was murdered. And so my parents would always say, you're very outspoken. You got to be careful. You know, we don't want anything to happen to you. But they also realized that Calum was the safest place for me because Chicago had gotten a lot more rough than what it was. With that being said, I, I, I ended up working in retail and moving to Atlanta, working with CBS Pharmacy. And I moved from Greenville, Mississippi in here I am working in Atlanta, which is known as the Black Mecca, and you're seeing all these entrepreneurs, these business owners, and different things like that. And my mother passed. She died of lung cancer. And here I am, my only child, having to deal with that. But my mother said something to me on her deathbed. She said, look, you've traveled all over the world. Look at my phone book. I've scratched your number out so many times because you've moved. She says, but you know, I'm going to leave you a little bit of money. And with me doing that, I want you to figure out what you want to do, and I want you to do your own business. What I did was open up a, a, a barbershop, which I, I, I wanted to get a corporate American. I wanted to have fun. I opened up a barbershop and I owned it and it did very well in Jonesboro, Georgia. And I just enjoyed it. I did that for about three years and it was fun. But I realized that owning a barbershop is cool, but I wanted to do something a little bit more. And so um, I started working for a company uh, called First Metropolitan Mortgage. And there's a guy named Marvon Williams um, who took me under his wing and taught me the mortgage business. And after working for him for a couple of years, I went out and opened my own mortgage company, Southcore Mortgage. And so I did that for five, six years. And when I say joy, I was living my best life. That was in the, the time when everybody wanted a house and I was making more money than I'd ever seen in my life. And I'm driving the biggest cars. I got the big house. I got uh, all the girlfriends in the world. I mean, life was wonderful. And um, I met my wife and we got married after three months, which is crazy. 
but we got married after three months. And then the mortgage crash happened. And this was my defining moment in my life. And everything that I had worked for, for all those years of my life, I was losing. I was losing. I mean, I mean, we talking about couldn't pay bills, couldn't do anything. I'm, I'm taking what they call survival jobs. You know, you go from making thousands of dollars a month to making $10 an hour and you're trying to, it was, it was, a, it was, it was a horrible time for me. It was the darkest moment of my life because here I am thinking I have a great education I can do certain things and I'm smart. I've been in businesses and this and that, and I could not find a job. And the only job I can find was in security. And it was a bad time. I can remember the New Year's Eve getting on my knees and praying to God and saying, God, it's got to get better. I need you to tell me what I need to do with my life because right now I don't know. I was already making a transition in ministry. I actually pastored the church for five years in Atlanta. I did that for five years. Um, I actually went to Atlanta Christian College and I got my bachelor's degree in Christian in, in Christian ministries because I felt that even though some people say, hey, you know, I'm spirit led to preach and different things like that. I wanted to get my credentials and I think that it only made me better as a pastor. So I pastored for five years. And so in, throughout that pastoring experience, you have so many things, man. I'm going to tell you something. That's one of the toughest jobs in the world to do because you carry a lot of burdens and you 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 see some you see some things, man, in life that that, that really are beautiful. You see some things that are hurtful. Um, I found myself going to court a lot, talking for young men on their behalf to, to, to make sure the judge didn't throw the book at them or going to go see young men in, in jail and, and, and telling them, look, you know, it's important that you do your part and that God still loves you. And, and that just became such a big part of my ministry. We did homeless ministry also, but just seeing young men throw their lives away uh, with the crimes and based on the criminality, the decisions they would make, that's where the law thing came in for me because I was like, for somehow, you know, on Sunday, you, you reach the people that come to church. You don't reach the people that don't come to church. And so I was, I saw this, this situation with a young man and, and it was pretty sad. And I just wish that at that time in my life, I could have helped him more than just being, you know, a pastor. And he ended up getting life in prison. And um, he got life in prison because he didn't want his parents to know that he was a homosexual. And that was pretty sad. And, and, and the attorney knew that. And, you know, there's legal things where things can't come out and stuff like that. But I just thought that was sad that he would rather spend the rest of his life in jail than to just openly say in court that he was a homosexual. That was the reason why that was a big part of that particular crime that he was involved with. And um, that bothered me a lot, Joey. That bothered me. Um, his mother was a devout member of the church who came every Sunday with her husband. And that ended up destroying their marriage. Um, but I just said, man, is there something more we can do? There's, there's got to be something that could be done. And so I've always loved the law. I've always wanted to be an attorney. And there's a word called fear. It really kept me from doing it. There's a word called exposure. I wasn't really exposed to African-American attorneys. I, I really wasn't. And later on in life, I was. And, and I decided to make the transition. And I sat down with my bishop, Bishop Jerome Dukes. Um, and said, hey, you know, I have this, I have a calling. I know I can do the church thing. I said, but man, I just think I could just, there's something here, man. It's just something that's pulling me here. And you're listening to Ron Brown tell his story. And he gets out of college and he's working in retail. He's traveling all over the South. And his mama passes. And before she does, 
She lets him know she's leaving him some money and he should start a business. And he does. He starts a barbershop. And the next thing you know, he gets into the mortgage business and he's doing better than he could have ever imagined. And that means good cars, a big house, girls, and then ultimately his wife. He falls in love. And then came the darkest time in his life, and that's that mortgage crisis. It hit, and it wiped out businesses and wiped out equity. The only job I could find was in security, and that's when he remembers getting on his knees and praying to God, it's got to get better. And meanwhile, during all of this, he was a pastor, and he recognizes just what a difficult job that is and what a calling it is. He said, I saw beautiful things and hurtful things. And I found myself in court a lot seeing young men throw their lives away. What's the next turn for Ron Brown? Well, we know it has something to do with the law and being a lawyer. When we come back, more of Ron Brown's story here on Our American Story. And we're back with the final installment of Ron Brown's story. While pastoring a church, Ron's mortgage business went under, so he picked up some odd jobs to stay afloat. Here's Ron speaking to his bishop about what he thinks God is now calling him to do, become a lawyer. I told him I wanted to go to law school, and he kind of rejected it for a moment, and he says, you know what, man, if that's what you feel like you need to do, you do that. And so for my first year of law school, I pastored on Sundays, and I went to law school, and I got to, um, I think my last year, and I stepped down because it was it, it got to be a, it got to be a, a, a lot, and um, I had great church members who said, "Hey, you know, we see that's we see that's where you need to be." I decided to go to Birmingham School of Law, which is going to be a commute, and I drove three nights a week because my wife did not want to move to Alabama. People that look like me don't have great stories about Alabama. I'd never heard anything good about Alabama. I heard it was probably one of the most racist places in the world to live. And um, even growing up as a kid, reading about Alabama, I would be in class and scratch my head and say, why don't they just move? <laughs> like, if it's that bad, why don't they just move? But I came and I met Dean Bushnell of uh, the law school and he was great to me. And I made the decision that that's where I wanted to go. And so my wife was like, I'm not, I'm pregnant. I don't want to do that. And I was like, well, I believe in it. I prayed about it. I believe in it. That's what God's telling me to do and I got to do it. So I would jump on the highway and I would go do class and, I finished up that first year and I told my wife over that dinner, we had a dinner at Houston's restaurant. I said, uh, it's like one or two things going to happen tonight. Either tonight's going to be a great night of celebration or when tonight's over, you and I will have to get two divorce attorneys because <laughs> I can't keep driving on the road. And so she said, no, babe, I'll follow you. We'll go. And we moved to Alabama and I will say this, it was the best move I ever made in my life. I lived in Atlanta for 12 years. I had a lot of friends, I had a lot of business connections. It was just comfortable. And to come here, uh, well, this is not the black Mecca. To come here and, and to go places and sometimes be the only African-American there or to be in meetings and be the only only African, it was an adjustment. But it goes back to what my mother told me years ago. I want you to go to school with people that don't look like you. Because if you can do that, you don't need to just be in a total black environment to be successful. Or you can just be, no, you can be successful if you're in an environment filled with African-Americans or if you're in an environment filled with people from all over, the, all over the world. And that was a powerful lesson that she always told me. She was like, look, I'm saying that white people do things better than black people. But guess what? It's important to understand the language in which they speak. It's important for them to understand the language in which we speak. 
and I ended up going to Birmingham School of Law and I met an amazing guy by the name of Vance Ballard and he introduced me to a tremendous amount of people down here and it was like a cosign. He was like, this guy's a good dude and that kind of opened up the door for me and so now it's kind of funny. Um, I had a tremendous amount of black friends in Atlanta because I live in Atlanta, but now that I live in Alabama, I have a tremendous amount of white friends and um, it's, it's, it's different. But people are people, Joey. Everybody wants the same things. I always say this. If you sit down and speak to a black person, a white person, you tell them what's important. It's important for them to make a decent wage. It's important for them to be able to provide for their family. It's important for them to live in safety. It's important for them to afford where they live. And it's important for their kids to have a good education and for them to be happy. That's everybody. So how many differences do we really have? Not many. You, you know, I believe there's a tremendous amount of opportunity here. Um, I... In my opinion, I see so much more entrepreneurship here than what you see up north or uh, because it's a lot easier. It's a lot more affordable. You know, um, you can literally sit down with a pen and pad and figure out how you're going to open a business and come up with a budget. And it's affordable. Uh, that, that, that's like me when I want to do mortgages. I think when when if I was to do this, did the same company in Chicago, I need to have thirty five thousand dollars up front. I need to keep that in account for a whole year before they even consider me. Well, being down here and want to do it, it was kind of simple. You turn your application in, you they pull your credit, you're good. You can go ahead and do what you got to do. So I think the opportunities were for business are a lot more fruitful here. I think also that's why a lot of companies are moving from north down south because of the cost of living to do business. I think that's that's great. I think the people are extremely warm. I, I think if you sit there, they'll tell you how they really, really feel. If you sit there with them, it's not so much passive aggressive. People will just tell you how you feel uh, about whatever it is, whether you like it or not. So I can always appreciate that dialogue. I think the cost of living is amazing when it comes to, you know, buying a home and raising a family. It's not so riddled with as much crime as we have up north. Uh, and the people aren't, aren't necessarily on top of each other. Um, I think it's kind of good that you can kind of drive 45 minutes out the way or 15, 20 minutes out the way and be somewhere very rural. And you can get that moment to get a time, time away to breathe and think. And to be honest with you, People are just kind of the salt of the earth people. They, they will give you the shirt off their back. They really, really will. So just like what you experienced about people being neighborly and warm and their values, I love it here. I do. I have lived down here in the South for pretty much the latter part of my life, but I've lived in Alabama for the past six years. I've seen people who don't look like me, white men, go out of their way to make sure that I'm comfortable, that I'm good, that an opportunity can be put in my hand sometimes. Um, I've seen that. Um, when I talk about the dean of my law school, about how nice he was to me from the day I got there to the day I graduated. How my relationships with Vance Ballard were and the different people that he's... Um, I have a consulting firm and, and I, I consult with a lot of businesses and, and, a, and the majority of the business owners I consult with, they don't look like me. Probably 90% of the business owners I consult with and do work with, they don't look like me. And they value my opinion and they value where I, they, they value where I come from, whether it's on an ethnic issue or just a straight up business issue with some white men in the room. Those are some of the circles in which I'm in. Now, when I step out of side of the circles that I'm in, I've had some people uh, be less than nice to me, but I think I can incur I can incur that no matter what up, up north or down south. So let me be the first to say this: all white people are not bad, just like all black people are not bad. All white people are not racist, just like all black people are not racist my children their lives are so different i was uh driving down the street probably about four or five months ago 
and I was talking to one of my cousins from Chicago on the phone and you know how you have the Bluetooth where your kids hear everything so you got to make sure you're having PG conversations right and so we're in the car and so my cousin says man do you remember Tommy the crackhead and he was naming some stuff when we were growing up I said yeah you know he was like you know look I actually saw that guy and he cleaned his life up and he's doing well and he's this and that he's like man it's really kind of crazy you know and he's like, I didn't even know him when I ran into him. And, he's, you know, we were just kind of having that conversation. I was like, okay, cool. So when I, I ended the conversation, uh, my, my, my son, Walgie, you know, he kind of tapped my seat and was with his foot in it. I was like, yeah, what's that? He's like, dad. I said, yeah. He said, dad. I said, yeah. He said, what's a crackhead? And you know what? At that moment, and this is going to sound probably crazy to you. I was like, I arrived. My children have arrived. My son doesn't know what a crackhead is. Wow. My son has never seen that. He's never seen a liquor store where people stand outside getting drunk. He's never heard a gunshot. He's never had to get on the floor because they were shooting. He's never, that's not his existence. You know, we live in the suburbs and he plays video games and he has a normal life. And we've talked, talked to him about the importance of not doing drugs, but he's not in that. And so as a parent, I feel like the biggest freaking superhero in the world because my child is going to be so much different than what I what I am and the things that he sees and the things that he does that's powerful to me that's powerful uh, that's when you talk about breaking change and breaking chains and changing you know the landscape of your family you know my son is talking about my sons are talking about being lawyers right now where I didn't discover that till later on in life so I think that that exposure thing is what I talked about They've been exposed to positivity, to, you know, just that they can be anything that they want to be. It's so different from them from when I was growing up. And I'm proud of it as a, as a, as a father that that's not their reality. Ron has made an impact on not only his life, but his family's. Amidst many triumphs and struggles, this African-American man from Chicago has made a beautiful life for himself in Alabama. But as in all of our lives, the struggles continue. He is currently studying to pass the Alabama bar exam while working as a consultant, being a father, and running to become a community council member. Amidst these busy and sometimes difficult times, Ron has a secret weapon that helps him get through it. I gotta trust my God that he has me in the palm of his hand. He's got my family. He's got me. He's got the people around me. He's still still God. He is still God. One of my favorite um, artists, gospel artists, is Donnie McClurkin. He sings a song, Joy. And this is this, this, I listen to this. Anytime life just seems like a little too heavy for me in life, I listen to it. It said, I know life is easy when everything is going well, but can you believe in me when your life is a living hell? Think about that. You know how it's easy when your job is going great, your kids are going great. You be like, God, I love you. God, you're so good to me. God is so good. Can you worship him with that same energy when you lose your job, when your wife gets a cancer diagnosis, when your child becomes a drug addict? Do you have the same enthusiasm and love for him and belief? That's what it all comes down to. I know life is easy when everything is going well. But can you still believe in me when your life is a living hell? That's the challenge of Christianity. That's the challenge of belief. Do we still believe? I do. 
And you've been listening to the story of Ron Brown. And what a voice, what an original voice. And decides to go to law school in Birmingham, Alabama, where he had some ideas about what the place was like. And when he ends up living there, it's nothing like what he thought. I had a tremendous amount of black friends in Atlanta, and I have a tremendous amount of white friends in Alabama. But how many differences do we really have, black and white people? And he says, not many. And then he talked about the opportunities in Alabama and in the South, warm people. Cost of living is just low, not as much crime. And to be honest, he said the people are salt of the earth people. They'll give you the shirts off of their back. What was most beautiful was him talking about his work as a parent. As a parent, I feel like the biggest superhero in the world. My sons are talking about being lawyers right now. This is Our American Stories, the story of Ron Brown. Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we love to tell stories about everything here, including music. And now, Jesse brings us the story of legendary radio DJ Wolfman Jack. Wolfman Jack! We just got a report here that hundreds of people are just swarming around the manhole covers all over the city and climbing into them. And a reliable source tells us that they are still trying to find the entrance to the studio where the Wolfman Jack show is taking place. <laughs> oh, gracious me. I think they found us. Wolfman Jack. Wolfman Jack was born Robert Weston Smith in Brooklyn, New York on January 21st, 1938. As a young teenager, he listened to the radio in his basement, where he pretended to be a DJ. As a little kid, I always listened to this radio station. I was one of, the, I was one of those kind of folks you'd call a radio freak, I guess. You know, I had transoceanic radio and a whole bunch of different other... You know, I listened to all the disc jockeys, different people, and copied styles and figured out how they communicated and what, why they made me feel good. And uh, I, I took all the good, positive things out of most of the the greatest disc jockeys in the world, people like Moondog, who was Alan Freed, you know. Hello, everybody. Hi, all. This is Alan Freed, the old king of the Moondoggers, and a hearty welcome to all our thousands of friends in northern Ohio, Ontario, Canada, western New York, western Pennsylvania, West Virginia. Big John R. from WLAC down in Nashville, Tennessee, playing that good rhythm and blues. This is John R. Way down south in Dixie. Horse Allen. From Nashville, Tennessee, this is the Horseman. Magnificent Montague. The Magnificent Montague, starring Monty Woolley. <laughs> These jocks would turn you around and flip you upside down. Magnificent Montague told me one time, if you ain't sweating, you ain't working. So I always remember that. So every time I'm on the radio, I'm sweating, baby. I'm working hard. But radio isn't exactly the easiest profession to break into. And like many of us who work in the business... Smith started out working as an intern. I uh, used to cut school and go hang out at the local black radio station. And I learned how to run the board and everything. And I was spitty then, you know, a gopher for the jocks. You know, I go down and they even let me, they even let me pick liquor up for them in the liquor store. I was only about 13 or 14 years old. And I ran all the errands for them. And they taught me what, what I had to know. And I hung around there and cut school all the time. And uh, my, my parents thought I was going to wind up to be a you know, they didn't know what the hell to do with me. Later, Smith attended the National Academy of Broadcasting in Washington, D.C., 
While going to classes at night, by day he supported himself as a door-to-door salesman. And although Smith was a high school dropout, he graduated broadcasting school at the top of his class. In 1961, Smith moved to Louisiana and started working at country music station KCIJ. I wanted everybody to love me. Although his show was successful and had many listeners, he was looking for something different. In 1963, it was in Shreveport that Bob Smith created the Wolfman Jack character. Well, you know that everything in entertainment is acting. Even singing is acting. Playing an instrument is acting. And if you want to be a good actor, you create a character for yourself. And then you act it out. You become that character. Now I have fully become the Wolfman character. It's taken me over. I mean, I can't get away from it anymore. And uh, before, I used to be able to hide the, the bushes, you know. The character had always been in me. Because there was the Hound from Buffalo. And there was Moondog. Wolfman. See, it all fits, you know what I mean? It was around this time that Bob Smith had the idea to get his new Wolfman Jack show on the powerful Mexican radio station XERF, a massive 250,000-watt station with a signal that covered the entirety of North America and beyond. Outside of Del Rio, Texas, in a little town of Coahuila, the state of Coahuila, the town of Acuna, Coahuila, Mexico. Now, this is a very powerful radio station on the AM band. Probably the most powerful commercial radio station ever, ever was. In America, anyway. Yeah, like when I go to Disneyland, you know, I never have any trouble in Frontierland. I never have any trouble in Futureland. But for some reason, I always get in trouble when I wind up in Fantasyland. Oh, no! crazy? <laughs> You're listening to the Wolfman Jack Show! Wolfman Jack's personality sent energy through the radio speakers and attracted the attention of millions of people all across North America on a radio station just south of the Mexican border where the FCC has zero authority. It was so powerful, this radio station, that you could take a fluorescent bulb and go outside and hold it up in the air and it would glow. A car would pull up to the radio station and the lights would stay on. They never used it during the daytime. See, during the daytime, that ionosphere came way down here, you know, so it didn't make no sense. Even with all that power, you'd only reach San Antonio, you know what I mean? They waited till the nighttime came, you know. Then they could scoot that sucker out all over the world. But when they turned it on during the daytime to test out the transmitter, birds would come flying towards it. Boom. They'd go run out and grab it, cook it for supper. <laughs> really, they used to get these damn birds flying by the... T- turn on the transmitter for a half hour. They'd have supper made, you know what I mean? A car driving from New York to Los Angeles would never lose the station, beaming out at 250,000 watts. Five times the U.S. limit could be picked up all over North America, and at night, as far away as Europe and the Soviet Union. If it's a new record, I'm going to play it. If it's an oldie, I'm going to play it. If it's a fresh artist nobody ever heard, I'm going to play it. That doesn't exist anymore. Great artists out there performing, people like Bonnie Raitt and Lyle Lovett and all these cats who played a good bluesy rock and roll country touch type thing, which is really the happening music. And nobody can put them together in one format. It's kind of like this guy went, no, this guy's country. We can't put him in a rock format, no. No, she's too country, she's too blue, no, can't put her. You know what I mean? It's unforgivable. These magnificent facilities are 
pump and puke out. They might as well be doing that over the air because and then people are listening to say, oh, listen to that. Oh, isn't that fine? You know what I mean? When we return, the story of Wolfman Jack continues right here on Our American Stories. Hello, who's this on the Wolfman Telephone? Hi, this is Frankie Valley, and the guy you're listening to is one of my best friends, Wolfman Jack. You got the Wolfman Jack! American stories, and we continue with the story of the one, the only, Wolfman Jack. <laughs> oh, telephone, where am I, Mike? Hello, who's this on the Wolfman telephone? Hi, this is Nick of Fleetwood Mac, reminding all my fans to listen to the Wolfman Jack show. Listen, it's good. Wolfman's mix of rowdy rock, verbal antics, and raw rhythm and blues began to make the news. His national popularity grew as stories began to appear in Time, Newsweek, Life, and City Newspapers, all asking the same questions. Who is Wolfman Jack? Where did he come from? And how did he get his hands on a Mexican radio station that could be heard all over the world at night? They would run preachers during the early part of the evening, up to around midnight. And then at midnight, they didn't know what the hell they would do. And they'd run country gospel, black gospel, they'd run all kinds of crazy stuff and after the midnight hour. So I wanted to go down to Del Rio to talk to the people who are running that station, see if I couldn't put this character Wolfman Jack on the air. So I showed up on the scene. And uh, the man who was running the station that time was a guy by the name of Arturo Gonzalez, the heaviest dude in that area. He was an international lawyer, self-made man. Became a lawyer through, you know, correspondence courses, man. And he made it on through, from, came over the border, mixer. now he owned Del Rio. And he owned Acuna, and he owned that radio station. So I had a meeting with him the next day. So me and my partner decided we'd go out and look at the radio station. Well, I had a brand new uh, Super 88, you know, one of those big Oldsmobile convertibles. I didn't want to take it across the border. I figured I wouldn't have anything left when I got back. So we got a cab driver to take us over there. And then we finally got over there. He took us to Boys Town, which is just... Red Light District. You know, <laughs> all the girls do their thing. So then we found another cab driver. We wanted to go out to see the station. He says, there's no roads to the station. I said, okay, well, take us out to the station. You put some money on him. The guy took us out. All of a sudden, we out there. Black as you can see. You couldn't see your hand in front of your face if you raised it. You know? We're driving through these sand dunes late at night. All of a sudden, out of the distance, See this little red light blinking like this. As we got closer, you could see it was a radio tower. And there was two buildings. One I found out was a building that housed the generator to supply the power to the radio station. The generator was big as a locomotive in a train, you know. I walk in, there's this great big transmitter. Looks from like out of space, you know. Big, beautiful thing. 
in front of it there's little coal things sitting these Mexican dudes you know cooking goat meat in front of the transmitter one guy polishing the damn thing I go to the back where the studio is having this meeting and while they're having the meeting Reverend Jessup is on the air preaching you know yes God if you send in $25 right now the Lord's magic number Reverend Jessup going to send you a personally signed prayer cloth for me you know that that's going on in the background. So I walk in, I meet this cat by the name of Mario Alfaro who spoke English. None of the other people spoke English. I could communicate with Mexican folks real well. Even though I don't speak it, I, I communicate with them. But this guy spoke English. And I found out what they were doing. They wanted to appoint their own interventor. Because the one that was appointed by Gonzalez when he was pulling his deal with the preachers were playing bad head games on the boys who were running the radio station. First of all, they weren't paying them half the time. And then they would come in, if somebody didn't like what was going on, they'd come in and beat the hell out of them, you know? So they wanted to get rid of this guy. And here comes the wolf man on the scene with a pocket full of money, my buddy with me, my Starfire Oldsmobile right across the border. What do you guys need? I got it all here. I started taking out the money and laying it on the table. Immediately, they loved me. I laid out about a thousand dollars and hundred dollar bills and I said, I want you all to have one. And that'll show that you could trust me. Well, they were amazed. So immediately I took control of the radio station. From then on, it was a process of calling the preachers and getting the money coming to me. I sent the boys off to Mexico City to get a new interventor to take over the radio station. In the meantime, I walked in on the situation and took over this radio station. Here I was going to present this tape to Arturo Gonzalez to put Wolfman Jack on the air. And here I was on the air. The next night, of course, I went on the air as Wolfman Jack. And that's how Wolfman Jack was born. By 1966, Robert Smith was now living as Wolfman Jack 24-7 had been broadcasting on XERF for nearly five years. Major music artists such as Todd Rundegren, Leon Russell, Freddie King, and The Guess Who all produced chart-topping hits written about the Wolfman. By the early 70s, he was living in Beverly Hills, being heard all over the world and making a lot of money. Maybe too much money. Because in 1970, without warning, the Mexican government took possession of XERF. And suddenly... Wolfman Jack was off the air. Clap for the Wolfman. He gonna reach your record high. Clap for the Wolfman. You gonna dig until the day you die. But the Wolfman got to work and capitalized on his fame by editing down his old show tapes and selling them to radio stations everywhere, becoming one of the very first syndicated rock and roll programs in America. And now, here's Wolfman Jack. You know, I'm a real audio video freak, and I tried playing with a lot of video games in my time, even before they were invented, as I was a real fan. And comparing them all, well, I come to one conclusion. None are as exciting as Harry Carey video games. They have the best picture, the best color, and above all, they're more violent than any other. Choose from the catalog of 456 different games, including Sidewalk Suicide, Machines That Mangle People, and my favorite, Mass Destruction of Everything on the Face of the Earth. Hey, when it comes to video games, don't be fooled. Commit to Harry Carey! <laughs> At his peak, 
Wolfman Jack was heard on more than 2,000 radio stations in 53 countries. In 1972, he was hired to be the announcer, interviewer, and co-host of NBC TV's late-night music series, The Midnight Special. In 1973, he appeared on the film American Graffiti as himself, directed by George Lucas. They said, somebody wants to see you over Universal, they want you to do a movie. I said, okay. So I ran over there, and who's sitting behind the desk? George Lucas. I said, what's the matter, man? You need money, right, to do this film? You want me to contribute to the film? He said, no, Wolfman, we want you to be in the movie. I said, oh, isn't that wonderful? And then I found out, he gave me the script, I read the movie. I knew it was a hit because it was Americana. It was what we do in the evening time. You listen to a great disc jockey, play great rock and roll records, you meet guys, you meet ladies, and you flash your car around, and you do the best thing, that's the most fun in the world. It's a shame a lot of kids can't do that nowadays. His broadcasts tie the film together. The character played by Richard Dreyfus catches a glimpse of the mysterious Wolfman in this pivotal scene. Are you the Wolfman? <sighs> no, man, I'm not the Wolfman. Who is this on the Wolfman telephone? Diane. How you doing, Diane? All right. That's the Wolfman. Do you love me? He's on tape. <laughs> the man is on tape. Do you love me? Well, yeah. uh, where, where is he now? I mean, uh, where does he work? The Wolfman comes in here occasionally, bringing tapes, you know, to check up on me and whatnot. Yeah. And the places he talks about that he's been, the things he's seen. And there's a great big beautiful world out there. And here I sit, sucking on popsicles. Wanting to leave? I'm not a young man anymore. And the Wolfman gave me my start in the business, and I like it. I can possibly do it tonight. I'll try to relay this dedication in and get it on the air for you later on. That would be terrific. Really. Thanks. Yes, man. Hey, it's been a pleasure. Thanks a lot. Really, I appreciate it. On July 1st, 1995, Wolfman Jack died of a heart attack at his home in Belvedere, North Carolina. <laughs> Rock on, man. We gonna do it right here. That day, he finished broadcasting what would be his last Wolfman Jack radio show from the Hard Rock Cafe in Washington, D.C. He was very anxious to get home, as he'd been on the road for several days on a promotional book tour for his autobiography. After a flight from D.C. and a limousine ride from the airport, Wolfman was happy to be home. He walked up the driveway, went inside his house, hugged his wife, and dropped dead. This is our American Stories. Wolfman Jack! X-E-R-B! <laughs> oh, this is Wolfman Jack Show, baby! I hope all you people taking down all your pictures, cause we gonna be playing some of that sound off the wall music, baby!
This is Our American Stories, and our next story, well, it's a bit of American history. It's the story of Aaron Burr, and you know him perhaps from your high school American history classes, what little you may remember from them, or maybe from the Broadway musical Hamilton, because, of course, Aaron Burr was Hamilton's chief antagonist, and boy, what an antagonist he was, as you're about to learn. But who was Aaron Burr? Well, Bill Bright is here to tell us a little bit more about the often reviled politician. Here's Bill. Lin-Manuel Miranda, in his extraordinary Hamilton, an American musical, brilliantly captures Aaron Burr in three lines. The free advice he has Burr offer to Alexander Hamilton when they first meet in 1776. Talk less. Smile more. Don't let them know what you're against or what you're for. Around twilight on June 7, 1812, a 56-year-old man returned from six years self-imposed European exile. He landed New York, somewhere near today's South Street seaport. He hastened to a friend's house at 66 Water Street, only to find no one at home. Only around midnight did he find a room, already occupied by five other men, in a plain house along a dark alley. In the morning, he returned to find his friend Samuel Swartout at home, and after an affectionate welcome, the Swartout brothers lodged him. The charm that had borne Burr up throughout his life remained potent. A boyhood friend and longtime political opponent, Robert Troop, lent him $10 in a law library. Then, $10 was real money. Then, as now, a law library is essential to one's practice. He rented space at 9 Nassau Street. He took out some newspaper advertisements. He ordered a small tin sign, brightly lacquered, bearing his name, and tacked it to the outside wall. When he arrived to open his office on the morning of July 5, 1812, a line of clients awaited him. Hundreds more would follow. Within 12 days, his receipts totaled what was then a staggering $2,000. However, the inhabitants of New York viewed the man, Milton Lomask wrote. They had not forgotten the skills of the advocate. Thus Aaron Burr, former colonel in the Army of the Revolution, former Attorney General of New York, former United States Senator, and former Vice President of the United States, resumed the practice of law. He had been born February 6, 1756 in Newark, New Jersey. He entered Princeton in the sophomore class at 13, took his degree with distinction at 16, and even spoke at commencement. He was elegant from youth, small, slender, broad-shouldered, and handsome. He had fine taste in clothes to which dozens of unpaid tailors on two continents would attest. His manners were exquisite, his conversation never palled, and whether in the courtroom or the Senate, he spoke quietly and conversationally, without bombast or literary illusion. He strove to see things as they are, not as they ought to be, and possessed a massive savoir-faire. Dexterity enough to conceal the truth without telling a lie, sagacity enough to read other people's countenances, and serenity enough not to let them discover anything by yours. He was also throughout his life much pursued by women, and they never had to run very far or very fast. 
He fought for American independence at Quebec, Brooklyn, and Morningside Heights. He was a lieutenant colonel at 22, wintered at Valley Forge, and had a horse shot from under him at Monmouth on June 28, 1778. That means he had gone in harm's way, for he might have been hit by the shot that killed his charger. Only one who has been thrown from a horse can understand what that means, the pains of having the wind knocked out of you, if not muscles sprained and bones broken. The man of pleasure once single-handedly suppressed a mutiny in his regiment. A ringleader leveled his musket at Burr, shouting, Now is the time, my brave boys. The last syllable had barely left his lips when Burr, having drawn his sword, severed the man's arm just above the elbow. The regiment knew no more mutinies. During his service, he met Theodosia Prevost, the wife of a British officer serving in the West Indies. Burr later wrote that she possessed the truest heart, the ripest intellect, and the most winning manners of any woman he had ever met. She spoke French fluently, frequently quoted the Latin poets, and read avidly. Burr admired and wanted her. She responded with warmth and friendship. Her husband died in 1781. She married Burr the following year. Nothing so testifies to Theodosia Prevost's character, charm, and intelligence than that this sensual, cynical man was throughout their marriage her loving, faithful husband. More, though Burr was a feminist by instinct, he admired Mary Wollstonecraft's vindication of the rights of women and kept a print of Mrs. Wollstonecraft's portrait on his wall, his marriage made those beliefs heartfelt. He was among the first practical politicians, and Burr was nothing if not practical, to work for women's education on a par with men. It was a knowledge of your mind, he wrote to Theodosia, which first inspired me. The ideas which you have often heard me express in favor of female intellectual powers are founded on what I have seen in you. She died in 1794 after 12 years of marriage. He never ceased to mourn her. Perhaps their relationship was the noblest achievement of his life. In Hamilton, Burr is asked, If you stand for nothing, Burr, what will you fall for? Clearly, at least in his love for Theodosia and his passion for human rights, he stood for something. In 1782, he was admitted to the New York Bar at the age of 26. He was elected to the legislature in 1784 at 28, where he fought to abolish slavery, and appointed attorney general in 1789 when he was 33. In 1791, he defeated Philip Schuyler, father-in-law of Alexander Hamilton, for the United States Senate. Thus, the feud between Hamilton and Burr began. The new senator worked hard without taking politics seriously. For him, it was the pursuit of fun and honor and profit. This earned him the antipathy of Thomas Jefferson, who took politics almost as seriously as he did himself. To be fair, perhaps that is not entirely true. We know Jefferson had red hair in part because he preserved a letter addressed to him as, You red-headed son of a b-. Yet the Virginian and Burr needed one another. Burr controlled the country's first mass party organization, the Society of St. Tammany. If Thomas Jefferson was the Democrats' first ideologue, Burr was their first mechanic. In 1800, the Jeffersonians nominated Senator Burr for vice president, and his troubles began. 
Presidential electors then voted for two candidates without specifying a preference for president and for vice president. The candidate receiving the most votes became president. The second place candidate became vice president. Jefferson and Burr tied with 73 votes each. The election went to the House of Representatives. The Federalists, who detested Jefferson, sought to elect Burr instead. After 36 ballots, the House finally elected Jefferson president and Burr vice president. There is no evidence that Burr had plotted with the Federalists to win the presidency. Nonetheless, Jefferson, who always had a slight touch of paranoia, froze him out and withheld patronage from his followers. And you're listening to the remarkable story of Aaron Burr. And my goodness, Princeton at 13. And we often talk about the fact that, boy, in earlier days, people grew up faster. And maybe it wasn't a bad thing. And my goodness, knowing the sting of battle, which Aaron Burr did know, at 22, a lieutenant colonel, he wintered at Valley Forge. His horse was shot out from underneath him in the Battle of Monmouth in New Jersey. And my goodness, the man knew battle, knew politics, and knew love. When we come back, more of the story of Hamilton's chief antagonist, telling his side of the story, Aaron Burr's story, here on Our American Story. back with our American stories and the story of Aaron Burr. And by the way, all of our history stories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, where they actually teach American history. Crazy idea. And if you want to learn more about Hillsdale, go to hillsdale.edu. Their terrific and free online courses are simply a bounty for anyone who cares about this country. Their Constitution 101 class, I learned more about American law and the American legal system from that course and three years at the University of Virginia School of Law. When we last left off with Bill Bright, after being elected president, Thomas Jefferson froze Burr and his constituents out. We return to Bill Bright with the rest of this story. In April 1804, Burr, knowing Jefferson would not allow his renomination later that year, ran for governor of New York. Hamilton had come to hate Burr, and Hamilton's rage was reflected in his intensely personal campaigning, which included indiscreet personal remarks reported in the newspapers. Burr was heavily defeated. Burr seized upon correspondence published in the Albany Register. Dr. Charles Cooper wrote, General Hamilton and Judge Kent have declared, in substance, that they looked upon Mr. Burr to be a dangerous man. And I could detail to you a still more despicable opinion which General Hamilton has expressed of Burr. Burr requested an acknowledgement or denial of the still more despicable opinion of himself attributed to Hamilton. Two days later, Hamilton replied with a lengthy dissertation on the meaning of despicable. Burr responded, The common sense of mankind affixed to the word the idea of dishonor. 
He then demanded Hamilton generally disavow any intention to convey impressions derogatory to the honor of Mr. Burr. Hamilton was trapped. This would have meant denying a great deal of his political conversations, speeches, and correspondence over two decades. Hamilton now feebly offered that he could not recall using any term that would justify Dr. Cooper's construction. Burr again demanded a disclaimer. Hamilton refused. On June 27, 1804, Burr challenged, and Hamilton accepted. On Wednesday, July 11, 1804, at 7 a.m., the two men stood ten paces apart on the Weehawken shore in New Jersey, pistols in hand. Hamilton, perhaps a second before his opponent, fired into the air. Burr shot true. He was indicted for murder in New York and in New Jersey. While his lawyers and friends worked to quash the indictments, he returned to Washington, D.C., where he resumed his duties as vice president. On March 2, 1805, his last day in public office, Burr rose from the chair. He stood before a hall of professional politicians familiar with every rhetorical device, many of whom hated him. Without changing his customary conversational tone, he spoke briefly of the United States and the Senate itself. The Senate, he said, is a sanctuary, a citadel of law, of order, and of liberty. And it is here, it is here in this exalted refuge, here, if anywhere, will resistance be made to the storms of political frenzy and the silent arts of corruption. And if the Constitution be destined ever to perish by the sacrilegious hands of the demagogue or the usurper, which God avert, its expiring agonies will be witnessed on this floor. Then, having spoken for once from the heart, he stepped down, walked across the chamber, and went out the door. He was only 49 years old. Behind him, the Senate sat in silence. Senator Samuel Mitchell of New York wrote, My colleague General Smith, stout and manly as he is, wept as profusely as I did. He did not recover for a quarter of an hour. Even before leaving office, Burr had begun a conspiracy. Precisely what Burr planned remains a mystery, a puzzle, a lock without a key. He told his first biographer, Matthew L. Davis, the scheme he called X was intended to revolutionize Mexico and settle some lands he had in Texas. Perhaps it was. But the legends remain, and the papers tantalize. The maps of New Orleans, Veracruz, and the roads to Mexico City, and the correspondence hinting he would not liberate but seize Mexico, draw the western states from the Union, and combining them into one nation, stand at the throne of the Aztecs and crown himself Emperor of the West. The gods invite us to glory and fortune, Burr wrote to his co-conspirator, General James Wilkinson, then General-in-Chief of the United States Army. John Randolph of Roanoke, most ferocious of politicians, called Wilkinson the mammoth of iniquity, the only man I ever saw who was from the bark to the very core a villain. Wilkinson, whose self-designed uniforms encrusted with gold braid and frogging failed to conceal his enormous girth. 
He was, as we now know, a paid agent of Spain, a man on the take. At some point, Wilkinson ratted out Burge Jefferson. On November 27, 1806, Jefferson issued a proclamation that led to the collapse of the plot, Burr's arrest, and Burr's indictment for treason by levying war against the United States. Wilkinson was not the subject of prosecution, though we now know that Jefferson too knew Wilkinson was taking money from the Spanish. Perhaps Wilkinson knew too much in an age not yet so cruel as to eliminate those who knew too much. Burr was tried in Richmond, Virginia before Chief Justice John Marshall, Jefferson's third cousin. The cousins detested one another. The prosecutor insinuated that Marshall would be impeached if he did not rule for the prosecution on the evidentiary motions. Marshall noted the threat in his decision. He also noted the Constitution requires treason to be proven by the testimony of two witnesses to the same overt act of treason. Of the dozens of witnesses presented by the government, none had testified to an overt act. Marshall then excluded all evidence presented by the government as merely corroborative and incompetent. Within 25 minutes, the jury found Burr not guilty. Now, in a self-imposed exercise in discretion, Burr left for Europe. At first, Burr sought financial support for X from the British and then the French. Nothing came of it. From the exile's beginning, Burr recorded his experiences in his private journal. Perhaps its saddest revelations are that this vital, charming man was so easily bored. Yet, as Lamasque writes, there was a limit to how many parties he could attend, how many ceremonies he could watch, how many books he could read, how many bright and articulate people he could draw within the radiant circle of his charm. He devoted his energies to fornication, with prostitutes if necessary, and other women when possible. Lomasque notes he described his amatory encounters as muse, a French hunting term meaning the beginning of the rutting season in animals. This suggests that he despised himself for treating sex in this way. Yet some principles remained uncompromised despite boredom and the lack of money. He never descended to drinking cheap wine. After his return to the United States, he only dabbled in politics. In 1812, he was pulling strings for an unknown man in the West named Andrew Jackson, who will do credit to a commission in the army if conferred upon him. When Jackson became president in 1829, Samuel Swartout, whose hospitality Burr had enjoyed on his return from exile, was appointed collector of the Port of New York with Burr's help. As M.R. Werner relates in his history of Tammany Hall, Swartout later hurried to Europe when his accounts showed that he had borrowed from the government's funds the sum of $1,225,705.69. The public, with that charming levity that has always characterized its attitude toward wholesale plunder, made the best of a bad situation by coining a new term. When a man put the government's money into his own pocket, it was said he had sworn out it. In 1833, Burr married Eliza Jumel, perhaps the richest American woman of the time. She had, after what may have been the most successful career of her age as, shall we say, a working girl, married an extremely wealthy man. By the time she married Burr, Madame Jumel was a widow. Burr probably married her for her money. 
Within the year, she began divorce proceedings on the grounds of adultery, a remarkable, even heartening, accusation against a man of 78. On September 14, 1836, the day on which the decree of divorce from Madame Jumel was entered by the court, Aaron Burr died in a second-floor room at Winans Inn, 2040 Richmond Terrace in Port Richmond, Staten Island. Two days later, he was buried beside his father and grandfather in Princeton, New Jersey. Lomask wrote, For nearly 20 years, the grave went unmarked. Then a relative arranged for the installation of a simple marble slab. In 1995, the Aaron Burr Association placed a bronze plaque on the grave that recites his services to the Republic. And great job on that by Robbie, our producer, and Bill Brike. He's the storyteller. Now you're wondering, who is Bill Brike? Well, he reminds me of my dad. My dad taught history, became a superintendent at schools, and never, ever wrote history, but knew it. And Bill Brike is one of those guys, and there are so many of you out in this country who love your country, know as much as any historian, actually, frankly, maybe more. And so we thank Bill Brike for this contribution. He's got quite a number coming. Has already given us quite a number as well. Thanks to Bill Bright for this story. Aaron Burr's story here on Our American Story. 